You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. But we are in 2 Kings 16 tonight. Actually, 2 Kings 15 is where we're going to start. So if you will look at 2 Kings 15, we're going to be starting in verse 32 there. And uh, I mentioned last week as we were studying uh, there in 2 Kings 13 through 15 that we were going to get a running start into our study tonight through chapter 16 to 17. So we're actually going to be starting in 2 Kings 15, verse 32. And if you're taking notes, the title for tonight's study is Further Decline and Downfall. And these studies in 2 Kings, I tell you what, they just continue to trend downward in morale as we see the, the theme really of the faithful and the failing just, just coming alive. I mean, the last, the last few chapters of 2 Kings is pretty dark. So, you know, it's just, it just all goes, goes bad from here. And, uh, you know, we've, we've seen that. We've seen the, the kings who have come uh, into power who are on the throne. They either started out great and they went bad, or they started out bad and they went worse. And it's all a product of them getting their eyes off the Lord. It's all a product of them stopping looking at the Lord and what he says, and instead looking at the world around them, looking at what the nations were doing around them, those howevers that were in the ones who did well. You know, it's like, he did well in the sight of the Lord. However, it's like such a bummer that that exists. But that has been what we've seen in the book of 2 Kings. And we know that for those that take their eyes off the Lord, it obviously never went well. And tonight, that all comes to a head for the 10 northern tribes in Israel. As we will see them go into captivity by Assyria coming in the land. But we start tonight not in the north with Israel, but we start in the south with Judah. And so if you will, pick up with me there in verse 32 of 2 Kings chapter 15 as we get a running start into our study tonight. It says, In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. So Jotham rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. 16 verse 1 says, In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. And Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Let's pray. Amen. Well, tonight, as we look at Ahaz, who was probably the worst king that the southern region of Judah sees ever, we pick up with him and see that as Ahaz, Judah's worst king. And jo though Jotham, his father, was a good king, and Hezekiah, who is his son, we're going to see next week, is a great king, 
Ahaz was neither a good king or a good man altogether. In fact, as we move through chapter 16, we see several ways that he compromised and was unfaithful to his family and the people and through, through it all, unfaithful to the Lord as well. We first look at how he failed his family. We see in verse 2 that Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. As his father, it says, David had done. And what this does is it reminds us, the reader, that as we look at um, the kings there in Judah, that they are from the line of David, that they indeed are in the line of Judah as God came to David and said, hey, I will build you a house. I will have a man from your line sitting on the throne. So we are reminded that Ahaz, even as horrible as he is, he is a descendant of David. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as David did. But verse 3 says that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, meaning that he turned the people away from worshiping the one true God and turned them to worshiping idols, to which we are expounded on how he did that. Where it says there, he specifically, he made his sons pass through the fire according to the abominations that of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. Now, what this is describing for us, what we need to know, is the participation in the worship of Molech. This was a Canaanite god there in the land that the, the, the Israelites were supposed to drive out of the land. They, of course, did not back in Joshua's day. And this pagan god, Molech, was worshipped there by the Canaanites. And the way that they would worship him was they would set up this giant bronze statue of Molech there with his arms outstretched like this. And then what would happen is they would heat that until the metal was red hot. And then they would bring their infant children to that statue and place them upon those arms. And all the while, uh, worshipers, musicians, and priests would be banging drums and wailing so as to drown out the noise of the dying children. I mean, just absolutely demonic in nature. And this particular worship, God actually spoke very specifically of in Leviticus when the nation of Israel was looking to go into the promised land, specifically in chapter 18, but he expounds on it in chapter 20. In Leviticus 20, verse 1 through 3, God says this, where it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives of any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones, and I will set my face against that man, and will cut him off from his people, because he has given some of his descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. And here what we have, here what we have is we open up in chapter 16 tonight. We have the king of Judah from the line of David, one of David's great, 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 great grandsons here worshiping this way, putting one of David's other great, 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 great grandsons on this pagan god's idol. To say that he was a horrible family man is to say the least. But what we also see here much deeper than that is the reality, again, what we've seen through 2 Kings, what we've seen through the study of God's word is that when we go to the trajectory of sin, there's no limit to the darkness that we can tap into. There's no darkness, there's no, there's, there's no depth of darkness that we can't go to when we take our eyes off the Lord. And that's important for us to remind ourselves of every time that we come to that fact in the Bible. The reality that, again, what James says, that sin, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. 
And it, it, it can bring forth death, whether it be physical death or spiritual death. Death comes where sin abounds. And we see that here specifically with Ahaz. And it's a warning for us, as this whole book has been, as this whole book is, for us to make sure that we have our eyes on the Lord, that we're walking in the word of God and walking in prayer and community with the Lord. And we're setting ourselves up to walk the way God wants us to and not the way that sin would lead us to, because sin will lead you. Sin will absolutely lead us anywhere that it wants to take us, because once we give into that, man, it's got us, and we can go. But we need to keep our eyes on the Lord. And Ahaz here, he's an example of where it doesn't matter what your lineage is or your heritage. It doesn't matter that your grandma was, you know, in the choir at whatever church. It doesn't matter that your father was a pastor or a deacon. What matters is how you choose to follow the Lord. What matters is how we as individuals follow after the Lord and keep our eyes stayed on him. Because if we don't, then we are in danger of going the way of the world, of going the way of sin. And sin, again, brings forth death. So Ahaz there, we first see him failing his family. And as he fails his family, he's, of course, failing the Lord in leading his family. But he also, as the ruler, fails the people. Pick it with me there in verse 5, where it says, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. And at that time, Rezin, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites went to Elath and dwell there to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to tiglath pileser king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried its people captive to Ker, and killed Rezin. We're going to stop right there. We see as a parent, as a family man, of course, Ahaz was a disaster. He was also a horrible ruler. As a father and a son, Ahaz was horrible, but he was also failed as a ruler there in verse 5. As we see there, Israel and Syria come against Ahaz in war. Now, the parallel account that we have in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 um, about Ahaz's rule, again, that is a chronicles of the kings of Judah and their rule, it tells us of the reality that Syria and Israel actually come against Judah because God put it in their heart to do so. God led them to go as instruments of judgment to Judah. And they go there, and we see in that account that Israel and Syria actually do a great deal of damage there in Judah. They do a great deal of damage, but are unable to completely destroy them. And the Lord even extends grace and mercy in many ways there, um, there in that situation. He sends the prophet Obed, Second Chronicles tells us, who goes to Israel and is like, hey, you've had enough. They're, they're, they've had enough. You need to chill out and go back home. And what was worse is even Israel, they had got caught up in the frenzy of the warfare, and they had taken captives from Judah, and they were taking them back to Israel. And God, through his prophet, was like, hey, hey, don't do that. Don't take them back with you. They are not to be your servants. And not only that, but we see God's hand in this as the people uh, from Judah are actually sent back fed and clothed. It says they were anointed with oil. They were refreshed. It even says that they gave donkeys to some of the ones that were like feeble and unable to get there. 
Like God extended grace there to Judah and was like, hey, look, this is an opportunity for you to realize that you're doing wrong. This isn't right where you're walking. And he extends that, that grace. But of course, Ahaz didn't listen. Ahaz does not listen. In this attack from Israel and Syria, Ahaz loses Elath to Syria. Now, this was a port city. It is still a port city today at the bottom half of what, is, of, of what was Judah in that day there at the Red Sea. And in response to all this, we notice that Ahaz continues to not go to the Lord. He continues to stay in his frame of mind of saying, I'm not going to be the Lord's man. But instead, notice what he does. He there goes to Assyria. He goes to Assyria, and there he makes himself a vassal nation, makes Judah a vassal nation there under Assyria's role. Notice what he says when he goes there. He says, I am your servant and your son. And he funds this from the temple. He funds, it, funds this from the gold and silver from the temple and from the king's house, meaning that he's taken resources from Judah and from God. And he is here in this, more importantly for us to tune into tonight, more importantly what he's doing is he's not trusting the Lord, but he's putting his trust in the world. He's not trusting the Lord, but he's putting his trust in the world and there as he goes, what he's saying as he extends this, this, this bribe, really, to Assyria, he's going to them and saying, hey, I'm your servant. I'm your son. Hey, all I want is your umbrella of, of protection. All I want is you to be there, you know, against those that are bigger than me. And Second Chronicles actually tells us that Assyria says no at first. And then they, you know, they help out a little bit. But the deed was done in that Ahaz has now made himself one of Assyria's vassal, has made Judah one of Assyria's vassal nations. They are linked there. They are yoked there to Assyria. And I look at that, and I think about that, and I'm like, man, that's a bummer. And then I think about it even more, and I'm like, man, what about me? And I challenge you guys to think, what about you? What about you, those who are watching online? What about you who are sitting here tonight? What about us? Where do we go when things get hard? And there's no denying, there's never denying, we never need to deny, and I will never try to pitch it to you this way, that the world isn't hard, because it absolutely is. The world is a hard place. We live in a fallen world where things are rough. But in those moments, in those times, in those seasons, where do you, where do I, where do we run to? Who do we put our trust and our faith in? Who are we looking to to guide us through the circumstances? Who are we looking to to lead us and move us and direct us in the best way possible? And the nice thing is, the nice thing for us people, because we're people and people, we like options, right? Like, I love options. I love options. I, I love them so much. I like the ability to be able to choose and go one way or the other or have multiple options. It's the best. And we have two options this way. We have God's way. We have the world's way. We have God as the one we put our trust in, or we have the world as the one that we put our trust in. And they're both available for us to go to. They're both available for us to yoke ourselves to, to take us through a situation, to take us in a situation, to take us through things whenever, whenever things get hard and things do get hard. Again, on and on, the world is, is hard. And the world, let me tell you, that option, they have an answer. The world has an answer to your problem. Like, if you choose that door, the world has an answer for you. It has an answer that, I'll be honest with you, normally makes the situation a little less painful immediately. 
Like, again, as people, we like options. We also like instant gratification, right? I mean, that's, that's, just, that's, that's just a step above options. I mean, if you get all the options and then immediate reaction, that's the best. And that's what the world offers. That's what the world offers. I mean, you think about life situations and things that are hard. I mean, when your marriage is rocky, the world's like, yeah, fix it. Just bail. Just don't, don't put in the work. Don't put in the work and try to restore or reconcile. Just get out. Or if that doesn't work, if you don't want to get out, why don't you just take a break? Whether it be with the internet or the neighbor or your coworker, just, hey, just chill out for a little bit. Or if the job loss comes, the job that you have comes and funds stop coming in, the world has a, has, has, has a, has a fix for that too, an immediate fix. Just get on the system. Just get a handout. Just figure out the system. And once you're there, hey, there's no need to get back on your own two feet. Just stay there. That's what it's there for anyways. Just stay there. Or when finances continue to go, let's say, you know, there's more month than there is money. Wait, well, there's credit cards, there's loans, there's things that we can do, there's stuff and whatnot in relationships, whether it be social or, 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 or family or anything. The world has an answer for all of these things. And again, honestly, when we look at it, when we look at life and how hard it is, and we look at the world's options, the world's options look good because they're quick, because they are there, and they're tangible too. And if we're honest, when we look at the world's options versus the Lord's options, again, to be honest with you guys, the way and the trend that we see with the Lord is he doesn't often change the circumstance. That doesn't mean he can't. We know that God is big, and he is faithful, and he's able to do anything. So he can change the circumstance. He can heal the sick. He can fund the, 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 the emergency. He can take care of anything immediately. But what he often does is he says, I want you to trust me, and I want you to follow me and go this way and come out on the other side of it stronger. Come out on the other side of it knowing that I'm faithful Coming out on the other side of it, knowing that you walked with me and put trust in me, and I was there with you the whole time. And again, being honest, that end on the other side, that could be heaven. I mean, the Bible's true about that. You could be giving something to the Lord consistently and saying, Lord, I want you to change the situation. I want you to heal me. And he's like, you know what? I'm with you, and I'm going to heal you ultimately one day in heaven where we will be, oh, man, praise the Lord, we will be healed and free with the Lord forever and ever in heaven. But here now, in this world that we live in today, life is still hard, and things still come against us. And again, we have two options. We have the world's way, or we have God's way. But when we line ourselves with the world, this is so important for us to get, because just like Ahaz does here, we do a couple things. One, we don't put our trust where it's supposed to be. We don't put our trust in the Lord. But two, what we do is we yoke ourselves to a system in a way that's not where we were intended to be. We yoke ourselves to be dependent on someone who can't ultimately satisfy, heal us, and lead us to where we need to go. And so as, as the church, as those who follow the Lord, again, there's no discounting the hardness of this world, the reality that Christians, we get sick, we get hurt, we have, we have, we have all the hardness of the world there to us as the world does. The difference is we know who to follow through it. The difference is we know who to walk through with it. And if we are going to yoke ourselves to someone to be led through, we need to do it to the Lord. 
We need to let him take us and let him lead us and let him shape how we live through the hardness. Ahaz here doesn't. Ahaz here, what he should have done is what we should do. He should have gone to the Lord, dealt with his sin, dealt with his issues, let the Lord restore and walk with him and lead him, and then come out the other side a restored man. He didn't, and we can learn from that. We can learn from that mistake. Ahaz is a horrible family man. He fails that way. He fails as a leader. Lastly, and I mean, this is just the trend, he fails the Lord there. Pick up with me in verse 10, where it says, Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tilgath-Pisler, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest, and the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Urijah the priest built an altar according to all the King Ahaz had sent, to, sent from Damascus. So Urijah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. Just a little surprise for him, I guess. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offerings and grain offerings, and he poured his drink offerings and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest, saying, On the great new altar, burn the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice, and his grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering, their drink offerings, and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offerings, and all the blood of the sacrifice, and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. He just kept that one for himself. Thus did Urijah the priest, according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts, removed the lavers from them, and he took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a pavement of stones. Also, he removed the Sabbath pavilion, which they built in the temple, and he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Two main things that I want to draw out of this as we look here and finish up with Ahaz. The first is his desire for appearance. As he there, as Assyria there conquers Assyria, Ahaz goes up to see the king. And more than likely, he was summoned like a little puppy, because remember now, he's, he's under their rule. But anyways, he goes, and while he's there, he sees this altar there in Damascus. And he's just like, got to have it. So he takes out his phone, he snaps a picture, he puts it on his pen, and since I'm just kidding. He doesn't do that. But he's like, man, I got to have this. He's like, look at that altar. This is amazing. And so he sends plans down to Urijah the priest and says that he wants this altar to be built and put in the temple for the sacrifices. I want this to be used for the offering. I want this to be used instead of what God had spoken of. And he says, keep the bronze altar for myself. I'll inquire of that. And now I know that Ahaz is the guy we're focusing on in this moment. But just for a moment, we got to look at Urijah the priest. I mean, this guy here who is the priest of the Lord there in the temple just immediately capitulates to the king's, like, wish. And this is a far cry from what we saw last week with King Uzziah. Now, we talked about King Uzziah and how in 2 Chronicles 26, we get the account there of him going to the temple to offer an incense offering. 
And there is, he goes, Azariah, who's the priest at that time, and 80 of their priests, they like bow up at the door. They're like, no, you can't do that. It's not your place. This isn't for you. You're the king. Stay in your lane. We're the priests. We'll do, we'll do this. And it says there, of course, that Uzziah, he rebelled, and the Lord struck him with leprosy, and he ended out the rest of his days that way. And this is here not too far removed from that situation, where now Urijah here has just said, okay, king, that's what you want? Yeah, forget what the Lord has prescribed. Forget what the Lord has commanded, what he has set up, what I'm supposed to be guarding and honoring. You're in charge. And so he there builds that altar, has it all ready for, you know, King, king Ahaz when he comes home. It's a big surprise and everything like that. Anyways, we see here failure in both of these men. Failure in the man who is supposed to be leading God's people as king. And failure in the man who's supposed to be leading God's people in worship. Both of these men, what they do is they look at what's outside of what God had said, I want this to look like. And they said, ooh, that looks good. I want that here. And though I, and I, admittedly, I'm thankful for this. <laughs> admittedly, I'm thankful, though there is not some divine blueprint for how our facility is supposed to look, there's no divine blueprint for a dress code of how the church is supposed to do. I'm thankful for that. Um, you're thankful for that, too. But anyways, um, I, I'm thankful that there's no, like, divine blueprint for how it's supposed to be set up and how we're supposed to move the chairs and have the doors and everything like that. There's no divine blueprint for the church, but there is prescription in the Bible for us on how the church is supposed to walk with the Lord, about how we're supposed to glorify the Lord and serve the Lord, and how we're supposed to worship the Lord. And we're supposed to do that according to the instruction manual, according to how the Bible shows us to walk and live for the Lord. That's what we're called to. And anything other than that, anything other than that is not doing what God wants. And we're his church. He's God, so he can call the shots. And what has happened, what sadly has happened in many ways, in many ways, the church, what we've done, and I say we because we're part of the church, and we need to pray for each other. We need to pray for the church globally and locally. What we've done, what we can do, what people have a proclivity to do is to look at things of the world and be like, man, that looks really good. How could we, you know, make that fit here? Like, people really like that agenda, People really like that aesthetic. People really like that message. Ah, but that message doesn't go with what the Bible says. So we just decide that the Bible is mostly true and not completely true. Oh, we see that those people over there, they, they're, they, they're doing well right now. And those that are linking arms with them, they're doing well right now. So how can we, how can we make it to where we not only tolerate them, but accept them. Well, it's just a different phrase, a different way of saying truth. Fine, I can do that. The world does it all day. Why can't I do that? And the danger is the church, what we do is we look at the world, we look at the things of the world, and we're like, hey, that looks good. I can make that fit. But what the Bible calls us to do is to live according to how God calls us to live. And to do anything other than that is disobedience. And it may not be an aesthetic of a building. It may not be an altar that we have to have built a certain way, but it is a view on sexuality. It is a view on marriage. It is a view on gender. It is a view on being a good citizen and submitting and praying for the government. It is how the Lord calls us to live and to work. It's all in his, in his word. And anything other than that 
is disobedience to the Lord. And here, these leaders, Ahaz and Uriah, what they do is they say, God has prescribed this, but we like that instead. And church, we can't do that. Church, we cannot be those that say, hey, I know what God says, but I like that better. I know what God says, but that's more palatable. That is not what God's called us to. God has called us to live and to live for him differently in this world. And that was really all we can say about Ahaz there is, you know, he was a horrible leader. And what's more, as he finishes out, we see continuing to cut away panels, continuing to take from the treasury, continuing to take from the temple, to continue to fund his bribe there to Assyria. And he dies, again, a vassal there of Assyria because he didn't trust the Lord. And somewhere along the way, what he did is he chose the world instead of the Lord and went that way. And he ends being, again, the worst king that Judah ever saw. But now we move from Judah south and we go north. We go to Israel and we see Hoshea, who is going to be not the worst king in Israel, but he is going to be the last there in Israel. Pick with me there in verse 1 of chapter 17, where it says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Eli, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Then Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. We're going to stop there for just a moment. Last week, we saw Assyria come on the scene during Menahem's reign in Israel. And there, Assyria came and attacked Israel, but they were warded off again by a bribe. Of course, they came back because that never holds. And now we have the successor of Tilglath-Pilsler, Shalmaneser, on the throne. And Israel is still a vassal nation there to, to Assyria, but Hosha is now on the throne, and he's trying to, you know, maybe finagle his way out of here. And so what he does is he goes to Egypt, which, just a side note, that seems to be the trend, you know, for pretty much all of Israel throughout history. I mean, you think about Abraham, he's called out, he sees some hardness, he's like, got to go to Egypt, got to head that way. I mean, just like, this is, the, this is the trend here. And Egypt, of course, for us in the Bible, you know, for you Bible students to know, is always a picture of the world. And it's always a warning for us to not run to the world again, as Ahaz did, as all these kings have done. It's a word for us to not run to the world, but to run to the Lord, to trust the Lord. Anyways, he goes to Egypt, brings a tribute there. This king in Assyria, he finds out about it. He busts him, puts him in jail, and that's the end. That's the end of Hoshea. And this is the end, really the, the end mark for Israel, for the northern king, kingdom of Israel, the northern 10 tribes there. And verse 5 tells us the story of how this goes down, how they are taken into captivity. Verse 5 says, Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. And in the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria, took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and Balhabor, in the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Now, it does us well to have a history lesson when it comes to the Assyrians to understand what's going on right here. The Assyrians, when they would come and take a, a nation 
uh, conquer a nation. They would take them captive, and what they would do is they would take them out of their homeland and move them across the map. And the reason for this is quite genius when you think about it. You think about if someone was to conquer us here in Paris, uh, this is home turf, right? Like, this is home base. So we're more likely to defend home base a lot more than we would, you know, Hugo. If you live in Hugo, I'm sorry. But it is what it is. Um, You know, we would defend that a lot, defend here a lot more because it's home base. Well, the Assyrians, they looked at this and they said, okay, yeah, so you're here we're going to take you elsewhere because if you're deported, you're more likely to not care that much about that area. So there's less of a chance of a rebellion. And so what they would do is they would come in, they would take captive whoever was there after they inflicted immense casualties because the Assyrians were a cruel, cruel people. History tells us that over and over again. They would then lead their their captives, often naked in long chained together lines where they would be hooked together through the bottom lip and they would be carted through all of these other nations that they had conquered, and they would be dropped off in segments along the way. And the Assyrians did this throughout all of history, where they would conquer, they would move someone over here, then they would take those conquered people and move them over here. Just across the map, you have all of these deported countries and nations that the Assyrians had conquered. And so that's what we see here when it talks about them moving these people in Hala and by the river Gozen and into the city of the Medes. That's what's going on here. The Assyrians are deporting them so as to keep them from wanting to rise up, wanting to rebel. And we know that it's the Assyrians who do that. It's their, it's their, it's their plan, but we know that it's because of Israel's choice. We know that it's because of Israel's choices to continually rebel against the Lord and go the way of the world. And as you pick up in verse 7, it reads often a lot lot like a court case there uh, to the fault of Israel. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read chapter uh, 17, verse 7, through the end of it. It is long, but you're you're grown up, so we'll be fine. And... um, We'll, we'll talk about it after that. So pick up me there in verse 7. As we see here, really a recounting of why they are now going to captivity. It says, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the king of Israel, which they had made. Also, the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right, and they built for themselves high places in all their cities, from the watchtower to a fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There they burned incense on on the high places, like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger, for they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer saying, turn away from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image of the two calves, made a wooden image, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. 
And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practice witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. And there was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. And also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which they had made. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all of his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is this day. And then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kulath, Ava, Hamath, and from Seraphim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. Again, this is the deporting activity that Assyria would do. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. The Lord knows how to take care of things. And so they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there, let him, let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines and the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth, Benoth, the men of Cuth made Nigrol, the men of Hamath made Ashima, the Avites made Nibaz and Tartark, Tartak and the yeah, all those. Anyways, verse 32. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of their nations from among whom they were carried away. And to this day they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and the commandments which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you out from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes, the ordinance, the law, and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear. He will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations fear the Lord, yet serve their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. So we read this chapter again. It reads a lot like just this summary. And we've been studying this. So this is all you know, old news for us as far as the nation of Israel here. What they've done is they've been in the land there that God had for them, and they continually you know, went against what the Lord said, and thus now they're handed over to judgment. And here, the author of 2 Kings is recounting all these things to them. And historically, what we see here, whenever, whenever Assyria there sends people from Babylon, Kulath, Ava, Hamath, and the Seraphim, and place them there in the cities of Samaria, 
Historically, what we see here is the start of what we see in the New Testament, the people who are going to be the Samaritans. There, as they are there in that land, as they're in Samaria, they are going to be those that, as that priest is sent over to take care of the lions, because that happened, um, he there teaches them about the Lord. It's interesting to see that this guy who was in a land that wasn't worshiping the Lord really at all comes back and instructs these people from who were, from, were from not that land how to serve the Lord in some capacity. But we see in the New Testaments how Samaria, Samaria has the Samaritans who are this mixture of Jewish because there were some farmers that were left in the land because that's what Assyria would do. They would leave people to keep the land tended. But you have some Jewish, you have some Babylonian, you have some Assyrian, you have this mixed breed of people who are there. And in the New Testament, we know that Jews, what they didn't want to do is go through Samaria. Thankfully, Jesus wanted to go through Samaria. Thankfully, Jesus wants to reach out to anyone and everyone and praise the Lord for that. That's a different study for another day. But here in this moment, it's good to know that or it's important to know that historically, that's what we see starting here. We see here starting the Samaritans that we see come up in the New Testament. But as we finish, as we finish out with Israel today, and again, we do finish out with Israel. From here on out in 2 Kings, the next four or five weeks that we have, there's no back and forth. There's no Israel to Judah and Judah, and that guy died last verse, and now he's back alive again. There's none of that going on anymore. We're only going to be dealing with Judah from here on out. And, and we, do, we do do well tonight to think about Israel here. As we finish with them, we do well to think about where they're at now, how they're in captivity because of their sin. We do well tonight to think about they're there now, and they're there now because they did opposite of what they were supposed to do in the land that they were given. And it does us well to tune into that. Because we remember and need to remember from the Bible why God chose the nation of Israel to be his special people. Like, why did God look there in the Ur of the Chaldeans and find Abram and Sarai and say, you, I choose you, get up, let's go to a land that I will show you. The whole history there, into Egypt, out of Egypt, amazing story of God's faithfulness for his people there. And then he tells them there, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, hey, I, I didn't choose you because you were amazing. You're not mighty. You're not big. You're special because I say so. Here's my law. Here's the word. Why did God do that? He did it because he was placing them in a place and a space that did not know the Lord. In a place and a space that worshiped other gods. And he told Israel to go into that land, to conquer that land, and they're to set up in that land as a people who live differently, as a people who lived unlike the people in the land, who followed one God, who did what he said, who were ruled by him and his word. It does us well to remember that the people of Israel, those 10 tribes, that they are where they're at now because they didn't do what they were called to do where they were placed in the first place. And it does us well to remember that tonight, to think about that, to think about that because we can learn and need to learn from that reality as well. We need to learn from this reality as well, that what Israel did, though they were placed in the land to look different, they again looked around and said, that looks better. 
They looked over there and said, I want that instead. They looked in front of them and behind them. They looked every different way, and they said, man, that's a better option than what God's given us. And instead of going and being who they were supposed to be in that nation, in, the, in that world, being a nation that was set apart and showing the world the Lord, showing them a nation that looked different, what they did instead is they looked exactly like everyone else. What they did instead is they looked like the nations that were around them that they were supposed to be ministering to and showing a difference to. What they were doing is they were living like everyone else and looking the same and saying, hey, this is okay. And what they did is they ended up rebelling and walking against the Lord. And fast forward to, to now, what we have is, of course, they're in, they're in captivity. And these 10 northern tribes, understand me, they're gone. Like, that, that's where they're at. The Bible is, is clear as to where they're at. Now, there's popular teaching out there in two camps. One, that there's these lost tribes of Israel, and they're somewhere in the, the European nations and things like that. I, I don't agree with that. The Bible's clear as where they went. The Bible's clear about where they went. Also, there's another teaching that's equally as false as saying that God's done with Israel. Then hear me tonight, I, that's not the case here either. These tribes are gone, but God is not done with Israel. We're studying Romans on, on Sunday mornings in chapters 9 through 11. When we get there, man, we see all about God's plan for Israel. It's amazing. God is still working in that nation. But that nation's in captivity, and they're gone right now in our text tonight because they chose to look like the rest of the world. Because they chose to look like the rest of the world and walk as the world did instead of showing the Lord to the world. That is a word for us tonight, church. That is a word for not just us as Calvary Chapel, you here, you online. That is a word for the whole church, for the global church, to realize and remember that it's the Lord who calls us, who calls us to himself and puts us in a place, in a space, whatever place and space you occupy on the day-to-day -to, -day to look different than the world around us to look differently, to live differently, to live differently than your coworker, to live differently than your neighbor, to show yourself as different to the people at the coffee shop and the grocery store, to live in a way that says, hey, I'm about something else, something greater than this world, something greater than what this world has to offer. But sadly, what happens and what has happened and what we have a proclivity to do as people and the church is not excluded in this is to, again, as the Jewish people did, as the Israelites did, say, man, that over there looks good. And that looks better, and I want to partake in that instead of going the way that the Lord has called me to and is instructing me to. And hear me this, there are none of us who are immune from that type of thinking. There are none of us because we're all humans, and we're all, again, we like options. We're always looking at the world, we're observant, and we're always keyed in on, hey, that looks good, that looks cool, I'd love to be a part of that. And what we need to do, as those who are called as believers to live in the world, showing the Lord, looking differently than the world, is not looking here and there, but looking right here. Being in the Word, so that, so that, as humans, when we're walking around and looking in this world that we live in, when we see something like, man, that looks good, we can be like, wait a minute, what does the Bible say about that? Or that looks amazing. Wait a minute, what does the Bible say? How does the Lord talk about that truth that the world has said is now truth and won't be truth tomorrow or will be a different truth yesterday? When we look and see a situation and how to navigate it and walk through it, 
because we know the word and are in the word, we can be like, hey, you know what? I know how God wants me to navigate this. And that, how we navigate that, looking different than how the world would navigate that, that shows, that shows out, but we can't do that unless we're looking to the Lord. The nation of Israel, God was very clear with them. Follow me. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Go where I'm leading you. Go that way. Trust me. Follow me. And you'll be blessed. And what's more, they would fulfill the mission that God had them on of showing him to the world. My friends, that same mission is for us as well. That same mission is for us to live as different people in this world. And we do so by being in the word, by prayer. You know, next week we're gonna be moving to Hezekiah. I mean, Hezekiah, he is, oh, he's, he is awesome. I love Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the Bible says, is the greatest king. He's the greatest king. There was none before him and after him. And this isn't God being like playing the comparison game or anything like that. God doesn't, God doesn't favor one above the other. He's impartial. But what this is is saying that, you know, Hezekiah was a man of God who followed the Lord. And he's had, he has some issues. I mean, all of us have issues. But Hezekiah is going to lead a revival. And he leads a revival first in his own heart as he goes and he prays and he submits to the Lord. As he goes to the Lord and he opens up just his heart to the Lord and he says, I'm not going to tell you how to plan this. I, I just want you to speak. I just want you to lead. And what happens is Hezekiah is this great king who leads a revival there. And I would venture to say that that revival is what keeps Judah from being taken into captivity right off the bat. Because King Ahaz, man, he's an awful person. <laughs> he's a horrible leader. And if I was the Lord, man, Judah, right behind, right behind Israel. Just, just, you're next. But thankfully, thankfully the Lord there preserved Hezekiah from being offered there to the god Molech. And we see him spark a revival that is going to change the tide there in Judah. And for a little while, they continue on with the Lord. It's an amazing story. We'll see that next week. But what's so important about that is he prayed and he sought the Lord. He was on his face before the Lord, being led by the Lord, how the Lord wanted him to be led. And that, too, is a word for us that we need to be in the Word. We need to be praying, and we need to be living out how God has called us to in this world. And we only do that as we follow him. We only do that as we follow him in his Word, in prayer, as we deal with sin, when we do sin, because we do sin, because we're sinners. We deal with it, and we continue to walk forward with the Lord. And as we do that, as we do that, we are different because we're going the way the Lord wants us to and not the way the world says that we should. And that sticks out differently to those around us. And had Israel done that, they would have kept being the light that God intended for them to be. And it's a warning for us tonight to continue to stick with the light so we can continue to be the light. Because if we're not the light, where are we? And where's the world? Yeah, they're in the dark. That's not what we're called to live in. That's not what we're called to shine. We're called to shine light in this world. And we learned that. We're thankful for the Bible being honest about those in history that we can look at and realize, hey, this isn't just dead pages and dead words about some dead people. This is God's word, wanting to lead our life into a fuller life in this world for him and for everyone else around us. Let's pray.